This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey, Breaking Math fans. First, I want to thank you for listening. I have an important message for everyone. You can start your own podcast right now with Anchor. Anchor lets you create and distribute your own podcast. Just get an idea, record, and upload. It's just that easy. Anyone can do it. I'm on my way to accomplishing my dream, and you can too. Just get on your device's app store and download Anchor. It contains everything you need to make a podcast. With Anchor, you can put your podcast on all the big platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Reach the whole world with Anchor. Best of all, Anchor is free. You have nothing to lose with a free platform. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Seldom do we think about self-reference, but it is a huge part of the world we live in. Every time that we say myself, for instance, we are engaging in self-reference. Long ago, the liar paradox and the golden ratio were among the first formal examples of self-reference. Freedom to refer to the self has given us fruitful results in mathematics and technology. Recursion, for example, is used in algorithms such as PageRank, which is one of the primary algorithms in Google's search engine. Elements of self-reference can also be found in fundamental shifts in the way we understand mathematics and has propelled our understanding of mathematics forward. Forming modern set theory was only possible due to a paradox called Russ's paradox, for example. Even humor uses self-reference. Realizing this, can we find harmony in self-reference? Even in a podcast intro, are there elements of self-reference? Nobody knows, but I'd check if I were you. Catch all of this and more on this episode of Breaking Math. Episode 70.1. Episode 70.1 of Breaking Math Podcast. I'm Sophia. And I'm Gabriel. And you're listening to Breaking Math Podcast. Uh, with us, and who did the intro, we have on Millie of Nerd Forensics Podcast, another uh, podcast in Santa Fe Trail Media. Welcome, Millie. I'm back, everybody. I am thrilled to have you, Millie. Nerd Forensics has been an absolute blast to listen to. Yes, I'm totally plugging it, but it has been. It's like a chance to let our hair down and just talk about the nerdy stuff, like uh, uh, Star Wars or, or, or The Simpsons or whatever. So, yeah, glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. I'm glad to be back. I'm actually planning on recording a few episodes this week. So <laughs> I know it has been a little while. It has been a while. Um, your intro was all, if you don't mind, I'm going to dive right in here. Your intro uh, was all about self-reference. Now, I want to mention one thing. Um, we, we trolled you all. All, all of you all who are listening to this, yes, we, we trolled you a little bit. You may have noticed on your podcast player that there was episode 70 with a certain title. What was it called, Sophia? This episode intentionally left blank. And it was literally like 45 minutes of nothing but white noise. Now, there's a reason why we did this. It's a little risky. Sometimes when you're trying to be funny or humorous or original, you have to take some risks. And we just did that. I don't know if we lost listeners or not, but we don't really care. Well, we do, but uh, there's a reason for it. As, as, as I dare you, you to delete us from your podcast, player. <laughs> do it. 
<laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah, we hope we, we hope you don't. But do as you wish. Um, I remember as a young kid, I'd always open up a book in the library, and the first page you'd have, you know, the publisher. Then you'd have a page that actually says this page intentionally left blank. I've seen that a lot in testing a packet. Yeah, yeah. I don't. And I always thought it was funny. Like, well, why did you do that? You're, you know, as a kid, I was so worried about recycling and wasting paper. You're wasting paper. Anyways, when I met Sophia, uh, we had uh, post-it notes everywhere, especially uh, when we were planning this actual podcast. We had all kinds of post-it notes one time and I saw that Sophia had written one post-it note with some notes on it then right next to it she put this post-it note intentionally left blank oh yeah wasn't that when we were doing the project um the uh my genetic uh, algorithms. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. I thought it was hilarious because it reminded me of those books that I read in school. So anyways, in an episode that's all about self-reference, we did that. Now, I want to mention that I took your humor, Sophia, and uh, I had my do- my stepdaughters do that with their dad because they, they always uh, – we're good friends with with their dad. Uh, we, we always uh, talk about dad jokes and inside jokes. So they always write each other Post-it notes. So I'll have you know they stole that joke. I also stole it at work. We've got these whiteboards. <laughs> that are cubicles that we were all given. The whiteboards are supposed to have important notes as well as where we can be found if we're not at our desk. So I did two things. I wrote on one part of the whiteboard, I wrote this white this section of the whiteboard intentionally left blank. <laughs> then um, beneath that, I wrote uh, if Gabe is in the chair, he's here. If Gabe is not in the chair, he's not here. <laughs> oh yeah, tautology, right? <laughs> so that also brings up uh, the point, um, what is self-reference? And it's a difficult question because it's kind of nebulous. Um, it's something is self-referential. I, I, I would say it's self-referential if there's an element that can be said to be part of the thing that either encodes the thing or points to the thing. Is that the technical definition you'd find? The thing, you know? If oh, you're... yeah. Read the philosophy wiki on the word thing. It's like 10, 20 pages long. That should horrifying. be punishment. You know what I mean? Like we should actually have somebody do that. It's like a dare. Anyways, you're right. Uh, self-reference. When I was thinking about it myself, I tried to think about how to explain self-reference. And I think the way I described it is like, I'll use the word thing liberally as well. You know, you'll have to forgive me. Whenever you have a thing, like, you know, say you're going to design a little artificial intelligence robot or something, it has to map its environment around it. It has, it, it has to see, it has to take input data on the world around it and makes a little internal map. Whenever you can have something like that, 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 that eventually can map itself, it refers to itself. Yeah, because you have the location of where it is. Like maps themselves are... are sort of a self-referential meta sort of thing. Um, and anyone who's under 40 um, knows the expression and is sick of it by now, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is uh, pretty self-referential. Yes. Uh, if you think about it, you're, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're, you can't do that. Yeah. You'd fall on your head. Oh, no, exactly. And Millie, um, um, can you think of some examples of self-reference you run into? Uh, my favorite example is you are here with a big star in the middle. Oh, yeah, and like malls. Yeah. 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 What is that thing in The Simpsons when they go to Area 51A? Yeah, it's you are here, we are not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. And um, before we dive into this episode, we're going to um, talk a little bit about 
we're gonna have a few guests on for a joint episode in uh like in either next or the one after that we're, episode. I think. Yeah. So what we can tell you is this: we uh, we we are planning to do it very very soon, perhaps as soon as a week, but the details are still being finalized, so it still may be a ways out. However, the Breaking Math Podcast is gonna team up with another fabulous podcast, a, a hardcore science and, and, and engineering podcast called the Materialism Podcast. Now, this is put on originally by an, an Andrew uh, Falkowski and Taylor Sparks. They are also joined by a Jared Duffy, who's a mechanical engineering student, and Ramsey, uh, I believe, Issa, a material science PhD student. Um, quick note here. I uh, This is Gabe, of course. I, I was very excited when I found a material science podcast because I was almost a material scientist myself. Um, I'm obsessed with material science, and I get very excited by all of the stuff that we haven't discovered yet. You know, you can get into sci-fi about what material properties, like what what have we not har- um, what have we not harnessed yet in terms of technology? Oh yeah, I, mean, I remember when you were doing that, that antenna design class, right? You, yeah. There, there's those there's those weird problems about like spheres of like weird jelly that refracted in one way and didn't in another way. Yeah. The electronic waves. Yeah. So so I want to encourage our listeners to check out the material podcast what I've also done for my co-host Sophia uh, oh and I'm so sorry I forgot to mention we're gonna be joined by a friend of ours the mad scientist podcast host Chris Cogswell dr. Chris Cogswell who is a P who has his PhD in chemical engineering uh, that and means- this podcast is pretty awesome it's uh, kind of diving into a lot of like pseudoscience in a mathematical and very scientific way yes so we will have the breaking math podcast who have got folks who are into mathematics and computer science and and electrical engineering. We will have the a, a, a chemical engineering podcast or host, and we will also have material scientists. And it'll be focused on material science as well as their show. And of course, our our episode is the superior because everyone uses math. In their <laughs> I love those fights. That, that, that kind of infighting is always all kinds of fun. But listen, before we move on to the next section, I recommend uh, our listeners check out their site and look at their show notes. They have episodes on things like um, an interview with a company that's making biodegradable packaging, for example. They have all kinds of episodes on what kind of materials can you use in uh, science and medicine that your body won't reject and why. And like, how are these materials made? It's, it's fascinating. Um, I also have economics questions for them, like uh, w- what kind of things in material science like affect uh, economics by making things cheaper, you know? Oh, yeah, either cheaper or um, like uh, there's uh, there's even the issue of like um, how uh, dollar bills and stuff are made yeah. uh, with those little, uh, little uh, almost microscopic red threads. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll discuss all of that on that podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the meantime, to prepare, just check out the Materialism Podcast. You can just Google it and you should, and you should find it. And now... Humor and self-reference. Um, one author, and his name is Randall Munro, and he uses self-reference constantly in his uh, comics. And we're just going to do a couple of these. Yeah. Uh, just uh, xkcd.com slash 33 is just uh, three panels. And the first one is just somebody saying, I promise to never again squeeze humor out of self-reference. It says nothing in the second panel. Third panel, he says, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's referring to itself. So you get the humor. Um, I think my, my favorite one we're going to save uh, for last. But uh, yeah, that's a good example. Then we got uh, xkcd.com slash 688, which contains a pie chart, a bar chart, and a um, kind of like a plot. And the pie chart uh, says how much of the image is red. I mean, how much image is white, how much is black. The bar <laughs> chart uh, says how, how much ink is in each uh, each uh, thing, how much ink is in the pie chart, bar chart, and the miniature. 
and the miniature of the comic just kind of is, is is a picture of the miniature of the comic next to a few axes. <laughs> and what's cool about that is that every single square depends on every other square, right? So like the pie, if if there's if the bar chart shows an increased thing, there's more ink in that, so the pie chart's going to change, which means the bar chart's going to change. You know. Okay, that's totally hilarious. I mean, make a pie chart and just label, just make some arbitrary slice and say, this amount of the pie chart is black, this amount of the pie chart is white. Like that's, Oh yeah, it'll probably converge, you know? You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of Claude Shannon's, um, what is it, the greatest, oh, what's the name of his machine where you turn it on and all it does is a hand comes out of a, a, a oh the um the, the useless machine or but it's not no it's called like the old the, like the ultimate machine i think see. let's find out yeah let's, like the greatest machine ever or whatever it is yeah uh, claude shannon greatest machine or ultimate machine i think yes that's what it's called okay yeah claude shannon's ultimate machine all you do is you you turn it on and a hand comes out of some compartment and turns it off that's all it does <laughs> and then we got xkcd.com slash 917. xkcd 917 is my absolute favorite. It is divinely funny, and I chose that words intentionally. Let me go to that, that comic real quick, and I'll explain why. So, uh, it's a three-panel comic. And in the first one, it has two people talking. One of them is at a laptop. One of them is standing beside the person just talking to him. And he says, what's this? The person at the laptop says, Douglas Hofstadter's six-word autobiography. After all, um, after all those 700-page tomes, I guess he wanted to try for brevity. And then, then the other person says, huh, let's see. Then he reads it, and it says, I'm so meta, even this acronym. And that's it. That's all six words. Then he says, whoa, I think he nailed it. And what are the first letters of all those words? Okay, I'll read that one more time. The first letters of every word in the in in the sentence, I'm so meta, even this acronym. I S M E T A. So is meta. Is meta. So I'm so ac- I'm so meta, even this acronym is meta. <laughs> Which if you read read Douglas Hofstadter who wrote um Godel Escherbach, I think episode seventeen or something was yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. We'll have, we'll have to see it. Or whether it's called incomplete. Oh yeah, incomplete. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah, so so obviously it's hilarious because meta is is that would you say the definition of meta is self-referential? Oh yeah, meta is almost just a word that makes things self-referential. So like, you know, um, meta store would be a store that you buy stores in. Okay, uh, st- <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's great. What so about, yeah, what about a store where you buy the currency to buy stores? Uh, oh, let's see. What would that be? Um, meta. Okay, so just self-reference with extra steps. Oh yeah, like, uh, yeah, but I, th- I think we could do this one. Let's see. So you go to the store. The, you, the, you're saying the word for the money that you use to buy stores from the store, right? A store that you buy money to buy the stores. Okay, a store that you buy money to buy the stores. I'm thinking of conversions, like when you change one like, currency to another. Yeah, like imagine that the the the, the store owners only accepted Dogecoin or something stupid. So <laughs> I, okay. I think you call that word like uh, Meta. St- uh, Meta, meta, meta store? Well, it's like, you'd be like meta cash, meta store. Uh, you know what? We're going to work on that and we'll talk can't about we, that next time. Can't episode. we do like a creative, a creative self-referential challenge? Like, so, you know, who thinks of the best plots that are self-referential? I don't know. I I say that anybody who gives us a concise way to uh, d- define what Millie's... So I'm going to bring up another XKCD. Let me look it up. Okay. Okay. Very good. So XKCD. So... It goes, you're looking festive. And this person with a Christmas hat says, I love Christmas. Really? Doesn't seem like your kind of thing. It's our most meta holiday. How so? All of our Christmas stories now are about discovering the true meaning of Christmas. Huh, yeah. And then sharing it with others. (laughs) At some point, that quest itself became the true meaning. Like a word whose definition is the act of looking up the definition of this word. 
Automata Logolex, my least favorite of Santa's reindeer. Okay. I blame Kirk Cameron. Another Automata Logolex, I think, is... God, what would another one be? Fourth of July? I don't okay, know. I'm not going to lie. I think that became my favorite one now. <laughs> like, literally. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah. Auto Meta Finding the true meaning of Christmas itself became the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> the quest to find the meaning of life became the meaning of life. I know the meaning of Christmas. It's Kirk Cameron and Kevin Sorbo need to make a movie together that tells everybody about how they're wrong for writing happy holidays on things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, l- l- let's make a parody on on that. I love that plot. Okay, we've got we've veered far off math. Menestor numisma t- I'll, I'll figure that out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I broke her. That's no, okay. Yeah. Uh, now I'm not going to be satisfied until I cu- it's like an itch in my brain now. And we have the book Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut in which there's a form of ice that they call ice nine, which is different than the real ice nine, which was discovered later. It's just a type of pressurized ice that has uh, different properties than normal ice. That's produced from ice three uh, quickly, so it doesn't produce ice two. But anyway, ice nine in this book, in contact with normal water, produces ice nine, which is a solid. So basically what it does is um, some ice nine gets out of the laboratory and it basically turns all the um, ice, all the water on earth solid. Interesting. Wow. Like a Borg type thing? Yeah, kind of like the Borg, but imagine it's just chemicals. Like, imagine you just have a form of water that's even more stable than water. Okay. That when it touches water, it form, like basically it crystallizes outwards. Okay. And, uh, and yeah. at the time, this was like, you know, thought to be like, you know, there are substances that this does work with um, yeah. th- th- that have this property. So, Catch 22. Um, so y'all have heard the expression catch 22 right oh yeah absolutely i mean like almost like you're doomed if you do doomed if you don't yeah like like you need the thing to have the thing okay so and uh the reason why it's and it's a catch 22 is a book by joseph heller it was published in uh 1961 and he wrote in 1953 but in the book if a pilot is deemed insane they don't have to fly to be deemed insane a pilot must request to be evaluated if a pilot requests to be evaluated, this demonstrates that he must be sane. Therefore, no pilot can ever be deemed insane, and no pilot can get out of flying. Okay, makes sense. And the whole book is about the ridiculousness of the military. Yeah, it takes place in the North African theater, right? I, I've only read the first. I've only read like the first like five chapters. I don't quite remember. It's World War Two, though, right? Oh yeah, it's World War Two. Yeah, I yeah, want to. I, I want to say it was the North African theater because yeah, I want to say North that Africa was or Italy. Yeah, I was going to say, because I know the whole Mediterranean had, like, the craziest, like, death rate for pilots in the United States. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And Millie, um, can you think of any pop culture references that are self-referential? The entirety of The Dark Tower. That's pretty self-referential to every other Stephen King story. Uh, do you want to explain that? Okay, so The Dark Tower takes place in a world called Midworld that serves as the nexus between all of Stephen King's different stories. Mm-hmm. Because um, some stories take place in the same world. Others take place in different worlds. Um, a good example is, uh, what is it? Uh, the Silver Bullet and It and a few other, like, pretty much any any story about, like, a kid who's dealing with something awful all pretty much takes place in the same world as Stephen King. I see. Um, and then you have, uh, you have some stuff that, of course, takes place in, like, the real world and stuff. And then um, Midworld, it's where it all links up. Oh, okay, so everything's tied together through Midworld. And didn't you say yeah. that um that, that um what was he Dusty Sam or whatever the evil guy he appears in? Oh, uh, Randall Flag. Randall yeah. Flag. I like Dusty Sam. That's a good name. Um, 
I'm going to use that for a villain now, Dusty <laughs> Sam. But uh, yeah, Randall Flagg, though, he's um, in uh, Children of the Corn. It's very likely that he was he who walks between the rows. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also the main antagonist in The Stand and a ton of other stories, Eyes of the Dragon and a bunch of other stories. Yeah, and that's kind of self-referential because, you know, you have all these different characters in all these books connected, and then you have all the, and then you have the thing that connects them all. So it's almost it's it's like a self-referential because each world refers to itself, right? Mm-hmm. And they actually do it multiple times. Um, Flag though is a great example of self-reference because he's it's constantly referencing him. So another major thing that self-reference does is it allows for some paradoxes that have shattered all mathematics and logic. So we'll go ahead and discuss a few of those in this section. Well, we'll yeah, and that's and one of the earliest ones it comes from Greek times is the liar paradox. And Gabriel, what do you do? You want to read the liar paradox? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, these are two statements, and one of them says the next statement is false, and then the next one says the previous statement is true. Yeah, and uh, so Millie, which one of these statements is true and which one is false? Well, neither of them actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then that's the paradox, right? Because if it's the next sentence is false is true, then yeah. that means that the previous sentence is true, which means that um, this next sentence is false is true. You can make like a logical engine with that, a perpetual motion engine, you know, just by running that. Oh, yeah, because so the next sentence of all the previous sentence is true is false, which means that the previous sentence is actually true, which means that the next sentence is false, and it just keeps going around in a circle, right? Do you remember SpongeBob when he has his arms all tied around himself? I, I, oh, but why would he, yeah, didn't he, wasn't he trying to figure something out? Opposite day. Oh, yeah, on opposite day, yeah. It, it feels like that, yeah. And the original liar paradox, by the way, it, it wasn't two sentences, it was just one. It says, I am lying. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's like, okay, is that person telling the truth? Yes, then they're not lying. Then they are. Then they're not. Then they are. Yeah, I think it's a little easier, a little more. The paradox is a little more apparent in the two-sentence version. Oh, yeah. And now we have uh, Quine's paradox. So Quine's paradox, to me, just from looking at it, it looks almost the exact same as the two-sentence version of the liar paradox, except it uses uh, different punctuation. Okay, so Quine's paradox... Yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation. Yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation. The first part was in quotations. Yeah, so yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation. Yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation. Now, one like like you said, it's basically the same paradox as before, right? Is that apparent, Millie? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so if you think about it, yields, if the sentence yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation... If you take that and you precede it by its quotation, it yields this sentence. Yeah. Which is paradoxical. Uh, because you know, if, if it's if it's true, then it's false, and it's true, etc. Okay. And the thing that's really good about Quine's paradox is that it doesn't have it doesn't say this sentence or like it isn't referred to anything else. It doesn't say this or that or me. It is just it refers to itself indirectly, which is used in um, a lot of math. Like for example, in Godel's incompleteness theorem, that's kind of the way that the Godel sentence works: is it refers to itself indirectly. Can't we name two consecutive episodes that the next episode is false, the previous episode is true? <laughs> I, 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 sure. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. One more thing. Hey, quick little humor thing here. Another another way of using self reference as humor. Years ago, when our first part when our podcast first began, we were invited to something called the New Mexico Podscape by a local podcast group called City on the Edge, and they were asking us, you know, personal questions as one does during an interview. And Sophia said, "Oh, and be sure to check out our our other podcast through the Looking Glass, in which we talk about what will be on the next week's episode. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> like that's that's what the podcast is. It that's you just discuss what will be on the next week's episode. Like if it's, it's oh yeah, each pair each episode is only about what's on the next episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that, that's the only. So what is it then? It's a self-referential thing. It's hilarious. I loved it. All right, yeah, and exactly, and uh, we're gonna get to the last paradox, which actually caused a huge shift in mathematical thinking. So um, Russell uh, Bertrand Russell was a logician in the early 20th century. And he was studying, or actually, it was it was eighteen hundreds, I think. Well, let me check. Bertrand Russell. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Bertrand Russell. Yeah, he was born oh. in eighteen seventy-two. Um, so he's about the same time as Einstein. All of them. So uh, just a reminder: um, the, a set is just an abstract mathematical concept that can contain everything, uh, anything that you're talking about. So you can say the set of all real numbers, and every real number will be in that. Or you can say the set of um, Barney and uh, Homer, and the set will just be Barney and Homer. Um, and so you can say Barney is in the set is true. Homer is in the set is true, but Marge is in the set would be false. Um, and uh, for the um, set of all real numbers, like I, you know, the imaginary no, um, number um, does not exist within the set, but like 3.97 does. Yeah. And he was studying the set of all sets. And I'm re-recording this part because I made a major mistake in the way I explained a Russell's paradox. So uh, Bertrand Russell, what he was studying was the set of all sets that, you know, have certain properties. So, for example, the set of all sets that are even would have 0, 2, 4, um, 8, 16, whatever, all the even numbers in it. So what he was studying is not just the set of all sets, but the set of all sets that do not contain themselves. So, for example, um, in this hypothetical set... 1, 2, 3, the set that contains just 1, 2, and 3 would be in this set because 1, 2, 3 does not contain itself. However, like a set that uh, did contain itself, which you can uh, actually have when you have uh, infinite-sized sets, would, uh, would not be in this set. And Russell um, asked a very simple question of the set. Does this set contain itself? That is to say, does a set of all sets that don't contain themselves contain itself? So if this set did contain itself, then it would not be in, in, the, in it would not be in the set because of the definition. Therefore, it would not contain itself. But if it didn't contain itself, then it would have to be in the set, which means it would contain itself. And this showed that you cannot have the set of all sets that uh, do not contain themselves as a set. What this meant at the time was that set theory had to be reformulated. Um, there's certain formulations like ZFC. Uh, which avoid this, but basically what this is is kind of like a litmus test. Um, any any theory that allows the set of all sets that, can, that that do not contain themselves is an inconsistent set theory because you could derive anything true or false within this uh, system. And uh, we remember from Godel's incompleteness theorem, which we discussed on um, that episode entitled "Incomplete." Any theory has to be either inconsistent, which means that it's basically useless because you could derive anything within it, or incomplete. There are things expressible that are true within the theory that are not provable within the theory. And now, back to the episode. Now we're going to talk about quines. And quines are related to quines paradox. The yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation, yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation, in kind of an indirect way. A quine is a computer program that can write its own code. So if you run the program, it'll write something out. And if you compile that, that is to say, you run that in the program's code, you'll get that code again ad infinitum. Yeah, very cool. 
uh, which is kind of strange because you could do it in, in it was, it's proved that you could do this in literally any programming language. This reminds me of the philosopher question about the original unmoved mover. You know what I mean? Uh, can you go into that real quick? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a very common one right now. This is done a lot in theological debates uh, involving something called the Kalam cosmological argument, I believe. But also it goes back to, I want to say, Plato, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it's actually... Um, is it Aristotle? Uh, no, I think it's um, Thomas Aquinas. Okay, but even before that, no, I, I, I think it's Plato. Let, let, let's find out. Let's, let's Google search it. But the idea is that... Um, Whenever something, you know, everything has a cause. Oh, you're right. Uh, Aristotle, okay. actually, weirdly. Yeah, so the idea is that everything has a cause, obviously. You know what I mean? Like like uh, sun goes on the onto a plant, and the plant, the plant gets energy from the sun, and therefore it produces fruit. Well, th these are causal chains. The idea behind an unmoved mover is what, what caused everything. And it had to be something that itself didn't have a cause. And this example of a code where if you run the code, it will write its own code in sort of a self-referential thing. Well, you had to have somebody run the code in the beginning to, to start. Now, you can also get further philosophical, like we would be the uncoded coder, but we ourselves have causes as well. So I'll, I'll leave the philosophy to our listeners. Oh yeah, and um, yeah, Thomas Aquinas actually did use that concept quite a bit in his uh, proto-calculus kind of stuff. Interesting, yeah. But yeah, so Millie, is the concept of Aquine, um, uh, what do you call it, clear? Uh, for the most part, you're you're talking about like something that could like program itself essentially, and well, not yeah, pretty much yeah. But but in the only program that it could do though is the program that spits out its code. So it's like the, it's a lot like the um, the. The, the impossible machine or the um yeah the useless, the, machine. The useless yeah the, yeah it's kind of or the ultimate machine Wait, yeah does Quine come from Aquinas eh? Eh? <laughs> no eh? are, you, are you sure I I'm mean positive oh okay well it, it's cool I mean yeah I was just, I was actually pretty shocked when he said no <laughs> because his name is literally Aquine is yeah uh, Meta. yeah and I mean you know everybody should name everything after themselves. I know Robert Fripp has been fighting for that for years. Fripp? What's a Fripp? Uh, so, looping, also known as uh, Fripptonics. Yeah. Uh, the guy who invented it, Robert Fripp, he's been trying to get it named after him for years. And it's yeah. like musicians are like, no, we're just going to keep calling it looping. Oh. <laughs> so, so yeah, you can actually talk about a multi-coin in terms of, um, uh, just getting back to this, um, uh, in term, uh, parthenogenic uh, lizards, for example, are kind of like a coin. Because um, you know, parthenogenesis is when uh, uh, something is born, basically a, a, a virgin birth, a birth without um, insemination. And uh, so th these lizards will produce themselves. And that could actually be done uh, if, if there were no DNA degradation, it could be, do that forever, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like a quine. The quine just produces itself, which produces itself, which produces itself. Um, and in this case, the, um, the birthing process would be like compiling. Yeah. The DNA would be like the code. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Now, this next section is probably my favorite section of this entire podcast. I'm just going to give you guys a little preview here. So Sophia wrote a little science fiction concept in order to illustrate exactly what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, um, the multi-quine. And yeah. right before we go into the science fiction, I'll just give the kind of technical definition. Sure. A multi-quine is a program that can produce code in a chosen language given an input yes. that produces the multi-coin in, uh, in whatever language that you choose. So like, for example, a multi-coin written in C could produce the same multi-coin written in Java or C given the input Java or C. Yeah. But that's kind of confusing, right? 
Uh, well, sort of. I mean, so, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll, for the sake of this episode, I'll say, yes, it's confusing. An illustration would help. And for all of our Breaking Math listeners who are into science fiction or creative writing, check this out. This might be a good writing prompt for you. Suppose we are on the planet Xanet. There are five species of different planetary origins here. There are the greys from Alpha Centauri. There are the blues from Beta Malari. The pinks from Floridia. Humans from Earth. And the shadow people from Planet X. Just as humans have DNA to represent their genetic code, the greys have ANA, the blues have BNA, the pinks have CNA, and the shadow people have ENA. As part of a futuristic pact, they, de- they produced multi-quine specimen Dolores together, a human who is the first of a multi-quine people. Dolores' DNA has been altered so that she can produce ANA, BNA, CNA, DNA, or ENA out of her earwax based on brainwaves. If Dolores closes her eyes and goes into a trance and pictures either a gray, a blue, a pink, a human, or a shadow person, her ears will produce the genetic code to produce another multi-quine specimen. For example, if she thinks about a gray during a trance, then ANA will be produced out of her ear. And if the ANA is taken and it's put into a gray's egg, it will produce another multi-quine specimen, say Dolorix. And now, if Dolorix goes into uh, a trance and pictures a human, DNA will be produced out of her ears, and this DNA, when put into a human egg, will produce Dolores again. Yeah, and you have like, and you'll have five different types of Dolores, right? Yes. Yeah, and this analogy, you know, DNA, ANA, BNA, CNA, and ANA are kind of like the source code of the multi-quine. The Dolori, Dolores, Dolorix, Delorium, Delorium, all of them. They are the compilers, right? The compilers of the program that take in code and produce output, right? Yes. And the output is, uh, and the output is the source code, the ANA, BNA, etc., right? Yep. Meditation is the process of compiling the code and outputting stuff, right? Yes. Yes. And the image that they choose to put in their head during the meditation is the input to the multi-quine. Yeah. Ah. And so that is the story of the Delori of Planet Xanet. <laughs> That's so cool. All right, now for the rest of the episode, sadly, I must dip out. But Boo. Um, no, yeah, kidding. what a weird phrase. I'm sorry I'm using that phrase. I should apologize to dip out. I don't know. Well, well that's a real phrase. It is a weird phrase. So my nephew says that whenever oh, he. Oh no, leaves. I mean, it's a re- I've totally heard that before. It's totally normal. I mean, but dip. I think of like you're dipping into. How do you dip out? When I dip, you dip. I dip. We dip. Okay. <laughs> Can you play the sound clip from that? Okay, Gabe's <laughs> dipping and keep saying that later. I'm not going to go actually dip. That's disgusting. Okay, anyways. Or oh, like with uh, tobacco. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a weird phrase. It makes me feel weird saying that. Anyways, I'll save the rest of the episode for you too. I'm sure you guys will do a great job. Uh, please follow um, us on, on all the socials. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll do some great episodes that are coming soon. So. Yeah, SciPod Sophia. Tech Pod Gabe. And I'm Camp Pod Millie, and that's Camp with a K. Okay, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Awesome. Now we're going to talk about recursive definitions in uh, mathematics. So the first example we're going to give, which we've talked about this on multiple episodes, is uh, Peano Arithmetic, which was uh, created by Giuseppe Peano, uh, who w- was born in 1858 and died in 32. The definition that it, it's addition for uh, specifically integers, right? Yes. And uh, it. And, uh, do you, and you know what integers, right? Uh, integers are um, the, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, that's when you, you, when you uh, put things in brackets, right? Actually, no, that's, um, uh, that's I, I, 
I can't remember what that's called right now, but an integer is uh, just zero, one, two, oh, actually not integers, these are uh, natural numbers, but integer is a whole number, like negative three or 57. Um, and a natural number, which is what piano arithmetic is for, is zero, one, two, three, all the way to infinity. So negative two is not a natural number, right? Yeah. But 72 is. Yes. And zero is, but negative one isn't, etc. Yes. So the way that addition is defined within piano arithmetic is uh, using a function called the successor function, where the successor of three is four, the successor of five is... Sorry, the successor of five is six, right? Yep, six. Successor of 100 is... 101. So the way that addition is defined is using the successor function. And the def definition is A plus the successor of B is equal to the successor of A plus B. And A plus zero equals A. Those are the two rules for piano addition. Uh, so let's give an example. So let's, let's do three plus four, right? Yeah. Three plus four is three plus success successor of what? Successor of three. Yeah, and so is three plus successor of three, uh, given this definition, is a successor of three plus three, right? Yes. So now we're gonna look at three plus three. Three plus three is equal to three plus successor of two, right? Yes. Which means that three plus successor of two is equal to the successor of three plus two. Yes. Then we go, so now we have two successor functions that we're dealing with. Uh, then the third thing is, uh, Three plus two is equal to three plus successor of one, right? Yeah. Which means that it's the successor of three plus one. And then the next one is three plus successor of zero is a uh, successor of three plus zero. And three plus zero is just... Three plus zero is zero. No, sorry, three. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm thinking multiplication. I'm all over the place. Oh yeah, you've been getting bad sleep. <laughs> yeah, I've been getting bad sleep, so I'm a little, I'm half awake, everybody. So I am not up for math today. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll p plow through. So we have the successor of the successor of the successor of the successor of three is our answer, right? Yes. So it's the successor of three, four. The successor of that, uh, five. The successor of that, six. And then the successor of that, seven. Seven. So three plus four equals seven. And that's how addition is done in piano arithmetic. Does that make sense? Yes. And you might be wondering why this is defined this way. It's because piano was trying to figure out a way to define the natural numbers formally so that they could be m manipulated on paper using simple rules. But uh, a theorem called Godel incompleteness theorem showed that there are statements that are true within piano arithmetic that you can't prove using piano arithmetic, which is kind of strange. Yeah. And actually, that goes for any system. No matter what system you have for math, no matter how complicated it is, you will always find at least one uh, thing in that system that you can't prove within that system that happens to be true. Um, and uh, the, it's and um, it's kind of fascinating. And the reason why is because any formal system is either inconsistent, meaning it's basically useless, like uh, like we did with naive set theory earlier. That's uh, inconsistent theory, or incomplete. And those are the only ones that are useful. No, really. So weird. Yeah, that is weird. It's one of the most insane results in mathematics. And uh, factorials are defined the same way. Uh, do you know what a factorial is? Uh, not entirely. Well, so the factorial of 5 is 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5. Uh, okay. Factorial of 0 has to be 1. Because uh, the reason why is because uh, since the factorial of 1 is equal to 1 times the factorial of 0, right? Yes. And the factorial of 1 has to be 1, so uh, th that means that uh, factorial of 0 has to be 1. So n factorial is defined as n times n minus 1 factorial. Uh, so that's just another thing. Uh, also, the gamma function is related to it. Uh, the gamma function of n is equal to n minus 1 factorial 
but the gamma function is designed is uh, defined for all numbers, not just integers, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the, the, it's defined as the gamma function of n plus one is equal to n times gamma n. Another example is phi, the golden ratio. You've heard of this before, right? Uh, yeah, but you know, don't don't ask me for any information about it. <laughs> well, the, what it what it is put simply is that let's say you have like a meter stick, right? Yeah. And let's say you want to divide. Let's say you want to take a piece of it such that the ratio between the entire meter stick and that piece is the same as the ratio between that piece and the smaller piece left over. So, and, and what, that turns into, what that turns into is the definition phi is equal to one plus one divided by phi. And so if you plug that definition into phi, you get one plus one over one plus one over phi. And if you plug that in, you just get that ad infinitum, which means that phi is equal to one plus one over one plus one over one plus one over one all the way to infinity. And yeah, self-reference uh, in the in this form is useful in so many um, in so many contexts, right? It's just uh, it's become a fact of mathematics at this point. Yes. Any? Do you want to ask any questions? Do you have any? Um, at, at the moment, not so much. It's just I I'm I I'm wrapping my head around it, and I'm getting that. So self-reference, it's because of the fact that um, a lot of it is to like is to prove theory and stuff like that. Oh yeah. But prove things. Um, the big one is defining things uh, like, uh, because sometimes it's easier to define something in terms of itself than it is to, in terms of other things. Well, yeah, you can't define something if you're not aware of what it is. <laughs> oh yeah. But what I, what I mean is like fee is equal to one plus one over fee. Yeah. It's like, well, what, how do we calculate that? You know, it's like, well, you just kind of plug it into itself forever. It's like, why do why would you now? And it turns out that if you plug in this last fee with any number, It'll just converge to phi if you just keep at, if you just keep adding one and then taking one divided by that forever you'll get phi. Yeah. And yeah, phi just happens to be like a nice little ratio. It's it, it's overused though. The golden spiral is not in every Renaissance painting, like everyone says. <laughs> no, it is not. It's fun though to put spirals on things. It's still pretty. I like it. Millie, have you heard of the Cantor set? The Cantor set. Uh, no, actually, I have not. So this is way, the way it's made. Let's say we draw a line, right? Yes. And let's say we erase the middle third of that line. Hmm? You have two lines left over, right? Yeah. Now let's erase the middle third of those. You have four lines left over, right? Yeah. If you keep doing that forever, you'll get what's called the Cantor set. Hmm. And what's funny is that the Cantor set has, area of, has a length zero, and it actually has a dimension between zero and one. Interesting. But uh, Millie, uh, did you catch how the Cantor set is self-referential? No, actually, I did not. Well, think about this: if you take the Cantor set, right? Yeah. And you squeeze it into the size of one of the original lines, that will it'll match, right? Yeah. So that's what it that's what a self-referential fractal is. You can find the fractal inside the fractal. Ah. And we also have um, the Sierpinski triangle, um, and uh, you've encountered that, right? Um, not too sure if I have actually. Uh, it's like, um, you know, the Triforce from Zelda? Uh-huh, I do. Imagine all the triangles were made out of, tri of Triforces, etc. So basically what it is, 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 is you first take a big triangle. And, and you, you make cut, it out of smaller triangles? Yeah, you, cu you cut out the triangle that, in the middle that turns into three smaller triangles that are equal, right? Yeah. And you cut out the middle of those three, and you keep doing that forever. And you get a fractal with dimension between one and two. And uh, the Sierpinski triangle, can you, did you catch how that's self-referential? Because uh, you're just creating triangles nonstop. You're just basically duplicating the original shape. Yeah. If you take, yeah, in, you can actually define the Sierpinski triangle in terms of itself, right? You could say the Sierpinski triangle is the thing that if you copy it here, like to the le bottom left, top, and bottom right, 
you'll get uh, you'll get the Stupinsky triangle. Yeah. And then uh, we got the Mandelbrot set. And Millie, I'm going to look up a picture of the Mandelbrot set for you. You've seen this, right? I have, actually, yes. And what's funny is that the Mandelbrot set is self-referential as well. It turns out that there's a lot of little circles within uh, the Mandelbrot set. And if you take the ratio of successive circles and you go to the point that, that, um, that is defined by them, you'll find another Mandelbrot set. And it was created by the complete curmudgeon Benoit Mandelbrot, who believes that he has a, uh, who believed that he had a, a monopoly on everything, a fractal, but that's an episode for another time. We'll, that'd be a fun episode to do, jerk mathematicians. Yeah, but we'd be here like all day, I think. Oh yeah, we we'd be here for a while. Like, honestly, not as many mathematicians as you think are like outwardly jerky, <laughs> but quite a few are. Yeah, I'm also. Uh, physicists don't count as mathematics people, do they? Well, no, not not my math per se, but they use a ton of math, obviously. Okay, so yeah, yeah, because I was gonna say I'm more aware of physicists being. Ah! Yeah, that, I think that'd be a really fun episode, actually. Yeah, that sounds fun, actually. I'd be I'd be interested in it. Oh, um, I do know that John Nash had some very 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 backwards views regarding women. Yeah, he was he was he's a complex character to say the least, right? Well, yeah. And John Nash, for anyone not acquainted, was a um. Oh yeah, he was a game theorist, differential geometer, and he made a lot of uh, contributions to uh, partial differential equations. And uh, he studied a lot of complex systems, but he was uh, like he was uh, very schizophrenic, um, treated, uh, and uh, the schizophrenia was treated in like the worst way possible in 19, in the late fifties, early sixties. Um, and I, I don't recommend anyone watch the movie the, the, A Beautiful Mind. It completely mischaracterizes him and his research. They don't even show him getting arrested once for soliciting sex from a cop. That it happened, happened multiple times, right? Yeah, it happened multiple times in John Nash's life. Like he was also he was also closeted and secretly gay. But uh yeah, he used to go and try to pick up men all the time and he had the worst luck ever because he would always just run into cops. Oh and yeah. This is back when they did like those ridiculous gay stings. Oh yeah, thank God things have changed. Careful analysis of self-reference has led to many fruitful results in mathematics. Over and over, we see new ways in which self-reference can be used. Nebulous and mind-bending as a concept, though it may be, self-reference has always been around. Creative ways to reference the self, it seems, will always be around. Limits of mathematics, ways of dealing with information, and the structure of mathematics itself have been proven to be dealt with often better with self-reference. Understanding consciousness itself may even be only tractable using the magic of self-reference. Self-reference is here to stay. In the future, ask yourself what asking yourself things means. Oh, by the way, is this conclusion self-referential? Nobody knows. I'm Sophia, and this has been Breaking Math. With me and uh, Gabriel, who's not on anymore, we had uh, Millie, uh, who is part of Nerd Forensics. Millie? And you can find me anytime at Twitter at Camp Pod Millie, and that's Camp with a K. And otherwise, you can find me at nerdforensics at gmail.com. And as always, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdforensics. And uh, really quick, do you want to just plug your show, what it is? So Nerd Forensics, we are uh, an amorphous omnibus series that just covers everything in pop culture. Uh, we're going to have episodes ranging from conspiracy theories to cryptids to why Nickelodeon in the 90s can't be reproduced. 
And what was uh, what, what, what did you say was a couple of your favorite episodes we've uh, you've done that I've helped you with? Well, I I, I produce the show, but uh, favorite episodes that I've done, uh, the anime one that I recorded with uh, Jacob was really great. Oh, I really like that one. Um, otherwise, I really, 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 really enjoyed the one we did about um, about magicians. Oh, that one was great too. Yeah. So if you like um, a pop culture at all, or just like cool stories, honestly, this podcast—it's uh, really cool podcast. Uh, um, check it out on uh, Nerd Forensics. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. And um, just a little warning: it is an explicit podcast. There's some bleeping, but you know, it definitely contains much more risque content than this show, right? Yes, yes, it does. I uh, I have much less of a filter, but I don't consider myself an educator. Think of me as the guy you don't want to sit next to on the bus. <laughs> so. <laughs>